Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is going to be fun. I'm really excited. I rarely, I think I've only done two prior episodes where I had two guests. Three. And uh, I'm thrilled to have Alan Sebenwall and Matt Zoller-Seitz here. Two of the finest critics uh, currently working, really TV writers, I, I think, writers about television. Uh, Matt's also a uh, highly regarded uh, film critic, and I've highly regarded him for, ever since he loved Solitary Man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before, these two guys wrote a book that I loved um, called The Soprano Sessions. Before that, they wrote TV, the book. And I, I was, so Alan and Matt, welcome. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. Uh, I, I want to start by saying last night, I uh, I watched the last two episodes of The Sopranos because your book really you know I've watched the whole series I think three times how many times how many times have each of you watched the whole series Matt well individual episodes I've seen more than other episodes you know like there are some of, I've seen every episode of the show probably at least three times and there are some that I've seen I don't know six I've probably seen Pine Barrens ten or eleven because yeah. I've shown it at the Split Screens Festival so you know right. And for me, this was, I think, the second time I watched it from beginning to end, but I've rewatched, like Matt says, a lot of episodes many, many times. Yeah, so I, I think I first I first watched uh, two years after the first season because Dave and I were making Knockground Guys when, that, when The Sopranos came out or we had just finished and everyone was sort of saying the whole world had changed in terms of the mob and I just didn't want to deal with it. And then I remember watching and catching up and, and loving it watching it again and um i watched it a third time when we were starting to make our show and uh the, but the book really sent me back to the last two episodes and the way the two of you uh unpeel it is is really an, an impressive thing did you have fun writing the book together a lot i mean yeah i have fun writing with alan anyway we started at the star ledger together and Alan came there in 1996, and they teamed us up in 97 to write this column called All TV, and it was just like a grab bag. It covered like half of a broadsheet page, and it was kind of whatever we wanted it to be as long as it was tangentially related to television, and we wrote that thing, you know, what was it, 40 column inches or something ridiculous like that. I mean, yeah. it was a lot, and, and we filled it. We filled it every day, and, and I sat catty corner to Alan like our, our cubicles were adjacent to each other and we were we were friends we were actual friends like we hung our families hung out together and and we talked incessantly and drove our colleagues in the newsroom nuts and they wanted us to shut up and and uh, you know and and after we stopped working together we kept looking for reasons to work together again and we did it we did it on TV the book and we did it again on this and we're, we're going to do it again on a book which I can't talk about because we don't have a deal yet but we're, there will be another team up yeah, and Matt and I, we're, we're good friends. We have very similar tastes, but we like a lot of the same things in different ways. So it always makes sort of for a good collaboration on this because we both love The Sopranos, but we don't always necessarily love the same things about it equally. And he's more interested in writing about the dream imagery. I'm more interested a lot of the time in writing about some of the mob action. And so when we would do these essays on each episode of the show, you know, Matt would sometimes leave a little space in one of his to say, like, this is where Alan goes. And I knew I was going to do the first draft of season five. And when I got to test stream, I just said, Matt, this is you. Have to take I'm, I'm writing nothing of this. <laughs> well, no, of course, I'm fascinated for a few different reasons about this because the yeah. way David and I work together, and uh, I can picture you guys at the Star Ledger finding each other and the way the other people reacted to the two of you. And I often say, Dave and I, it's the same thing. We have, we've always gone out and shared whatever we've learned with the other, the other guy, 
And yes, our taste is really similar, but again, we could watch the same movie, both feel this, ultimately the same way about it, but for different reasons. But Matt, you said the thing about column inches, and this is something yeah. I want to get into a little later, which is um, the way that the two of you together and separately have survived and, and thrived in, in, in an industry that's kind of dying. Yeah. And um, you're laughing, but it's a mordant laugh. Oh, yeah. We are well aware that we are on a sinking ship rearranging the deck chairs. Yeah, but I want to get to it, but I want to go back, but, but I want to go go before that. I prefer the melting ice flow, but same difference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you end up in the ocean either way. Yeah. Um, but let's start at like the basic because you know I, the world is so different now in the way that creators and critics or writers about television I- interact. Um, and in the way that the audience interacts with the people writing about the work. Like John Simon would write about these plays. And you might you could kind of imagine the hue and cry against him. But there was no real way other than somebody sending a letter um, to the New York to New York Magazine for somebody to actually argue against John Simon. He was already six reviews down the road. Once in a while, you'd get some people actually protesting something that was written, uh, which happened with uh, with like Streisand's nose or something. Yeah, right? or or like there was a review of Dress to Kill and the, uh, the Boston Phoenix by a critic who later became a filmmaker. He wrote the screenplay to Lolita. Uh, and he was on the Americans. Stephen Schiff. Yes, it was Stephen Schiff, and and actually, people actually picketed the Boston Phoenix over that review, uh, but that was rare. That was rare. I mean, it was, you know, it, ha- it might happen more often for like news coverage than it would for something like a review of a movie. So let's start right at the basic complaint, which I, you see all, all the time, which is, uh, what the fuck do they know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what the fuck do you guys know? Yeah. So, but can you talk about building a critical? faculty like about consciously developing taste a reference base a prism point of view because when one reads look alan you know your sopranos uh i mean not sopranos your Mad Men recaps were like my favorite thing to read of the week i, I mean i thought molly did an amazing job at grantland too and i liked what lasanti did was hilarious but i mean i remember just i could not wait for that thing to show up after watching the episodes of Mad Men, and it really made me understand the way the work you were doing to grapple with that material so but can you talk about actually consciously each of you and as long as it takes because i don't think critics have the opportunity like i think nobody read tony scott's book i read it but i don't think most people read it i did yeah of course you read it but you don't count (laughs) (laughs) uh Alan, you didn't read it? I have it. It's like that, on, it's on the Kindle. I have it. That's, yes. that's not even nowhere near acceptable that I've read that book and you haven't. But can you talk about building a critical faculty, developing taste, reference-based, prism, point of view? You start, then you go. All right. Um, so I remember I was a little kid, and I would start watching Siskel and Ebert, and off, most of the time they were talking about movies I had never seen. Like, you know, I never saw My Dinner with Andre, and they did like 17 different episodes about that. Um, but... I just loved hearing them talk about the movies, and I said, like, I want to do this someday. And eventually, I discovered, you know, Roger's writing. Uh, it, it, it appeared in one of the local newspapers. I found the book collections of him. I found Pauline Kael. I read all their stuff, and I went to see everything. And I would just love especially finding when one, once a writer I respected completely disagreed with me about something. Like, it would annoy me. You know, Pauline Kael was famously contrarian. But then I would look at him like, okay, well, what's she seeing here? What's the argument she's trying to make? Uh, and like, I, it really ma- forced me to defend my own takes and my own biases. And I would just sort of have this internal dialogue with them as Consciously? I was doing it. 
it was sort of conscious for you, like I'm engaging. Yes, I mean, I wasn't like fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, I wasn't like talking to thin air, but like I would be reading a copy of I Lost It at the Movies. Yes, and I'd be like, you know, what what the hell does she have against you know, popular movie X? And then I would think about it. Um, And the the hope was I always figured I was probably going to be a movie critic, or I wanted to be a movie critic. And every stop along the way, people would tell me, "What are you thinking about? Like that's a hard job to get." You're not going to get there. I got to the college paper at the University of Pennsylvania. I, you know, started right, became the film editor there for a while, and you know, did interviews, did junkets, reality. Were you a bu- film theory major? Uh, no, commu- major? communications. Right. But I, I like to say I majored in the newspaper. I took sort of like an easy major in order to spend as much time at the newsroom as I possibly could. Uh, but I was just trying to watch as much as I could and read as much as I could. Uh, and my sophomore year. NYPD Blue debuted, and I had, I, I was one of those weird kids who watched Hill Street Blues and all these shows that were way too old for me. Me too. Growing up, and I loved it, and I'm watching NYPD Blue, and we get to the end of the fourth episode, which is the one where David Schwimmer dies. Uh, yeah, and Caruso was like, B, there. what's his, 11, 4B, B. Yeah, Josh 4B Goldstein. Yeah. Yeah. So he's dying, and I'm sitting there in my dorm room watching it. And like my roommates are like, "What? What the hell are you looking at here?" And I'm starting to choke up, and I said, "I got to do something about this." Uh, and you know, a, a, a couple weeks later, someone on, on a Usenet news group I was on said, "Hey, I missed last week's episode. I'm not going to be able to see it because this was the days before VHS and DVRs. You know, what happened?" And I didn't want to do my term paper, so in the middle of the night, I wrote a recap of the previous episode of NYPD Blue. And a lot of people said, hey, I like that, and I saw the episode. Could you do that again? So I started doing It's like doing the that. scene in a, in a biopic where, you know, it's like Arthur pulls the sword from the stone. Yes. That's the moment. Yeah, the light bulb went off. Um, and so I began doing that. I set up a whole website for it. That's how I got the job at the Ledger, because I included with my college newspaper clippings, I printed out some pages from the website and in 1996, this was a novelty, and this impressed Susan Olds, our editor at the time, uh, and I got the job. But when you mentioned the Mad Men reviews, I could not have done those at the time I started at the paper. Like, I needed a decade plus of having written all day, every day, you know, having spent years doing individual episode recaps, first of NYPD Blue and then a decade later of a lot of other shows, to really work up the muscles to be able to, especially when in the later seasons we stopped getting screeners of the show, right? And I had to like stay up late on a Sunday night to write it. Like I really had to be in peak, you know, Olympic form in order to do that. And did you were you thinking about then as you were doing the NYPD Blue ones? I'm sure you were recapping. And they must have been funny and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, at the time, were you already thinking because the hyperlink age made them something about the Mad Men uh, recaps? If not easier, there was a, a way that you could research uh, the song that she's Zuby's you know, right. There's a yeah. There was a way that you could find that stuff. Yes. Did did you start developing though your your point of view about this stuff? Then how consciously did you start developing point of view? It, well, it, it took a while because if you go back and you read the NYPD Blue stuff, if you go back and you look at the early things back in 05 and 06 when I started the What's Alan Watching blog. Uh, when I got back into recapping, a lot of it is just, I liked this, I didn't like that. It's just thumbs up, thumbs down. It's really primitive, elemental criticism, you know, which is on a level that some people certainly want, but uh, is ultimately less interesting to me to write, and I think less interesting for a lot of people to read. And at a certain point, when I started doing individual Sopranos recaps and then moving on to Mad Men, I began to think a lot more, well, what did this scene mean? Obviously, this is great, so I can't just say, wow, James Gandolfini is a really good actor, 
I need to dig deeper and start talking about what's going on inside Tony Soprano, what's going on inside Don Draper, Peggy Olson, Walter White, you know, all these people that we wound up writing about because Matt and I happen to be in the right place at the right time for the golden age of television. Do, Matt, does so I, I want to hear your narrative also about this stuff, how you built a critical faculty, how you built a point of view. But do you think that is the separation, the thing when, when people say, what the fuck do you guys know? It is... The, the 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 passion you put into it, the amount of stuff that you watched, the reading. You didn't mention Truffaut. Did you read Truffaut too then? I did not read Truffaut. To this day? I don't know. Well, as a choice? No, it just it, it never it never came up back then. And then I think at a certain point I felt confident enough in my own voice and my own faculties that I'm just sort of plunging ahead and trying to maybe read a little less criticism. I mean, one of the things that's sort of great but also difficult about the internet age is you've got all of these wonderful writers writing these pieces, and I want to look at them, but I don't want to... I'm very easily influenced. Like, I'm always sort of on guard for... I don't want that idea, I don't want that turn of phrase to get stuck in my head because that's theirs and I'm not taking it. I make a point of not reading the reviews of other people who have written about something that I am about to write about. Just because I don't want it to influence my, t- I don't want to be unconsciously reacting against them, and arguing with them or anything like that. Like I want to have a pristine take, and if it means that I end up saying something that's kind of in the ballpark of something somebody else said, then so be I it. I want to but get that back doesn't to, usually, I want to get back to this. I have but a that whole doesn't series usually of happen. That, right, doesn't usu- that doesn't usually happen because my take on things tends to be a little, a little kind of weird, and I don't know what the word is, but. Sightseeing. Yeah, I guess. Well, you know, I mean, the fact Jazzy. that, like, the fact that, well, I come from a family know, of jazz musicians. So, you know, and, and, uh, in jazz, you've got a melody, but the melody is not the point of it. The melody is the thing that you come Play back to. Of, yeah. Exactly. And in fact, you know, I would say the single biggest influence on, um, on my writing is my dad, Dave Zoller, who's a composer and pianist. And I grew up listening to him. My mother, my stepfather, and all of these people in the Dallas jazz community playing jazz. And in jazz, you know, you start out by stating the melody, and then you, uh, everybody takes a solo, and then gradually you return to the melody for a big finish. And you look at most of my reviews, and they're that way. And, they're, and you know, the, the last thing that I write is the paragraph where I tell people what it's about and who's in it, because I'm not interested in that for the most part. Uh, and I'm not interested in, you know, the kind of thumbs up, thumbs down thing. And, and to me... And I actually get, you know, complaints from people about this where it's like, you didn't tell me if you thought the movie was good. And it's like, well, hopefully that came through by osmosis when, if you read me enough. But if I liked it, you, you know, can t- you, I think you can tell by the level of enthusiasm I have and how, and how into the writing of it I seem to be, whether or not I enjoyed it or really hated it, which is a different kind of engagement. Um, but ultimately, like, I, I am not as concerned about plot, character, and theme, although I do write about that, you know, in the narrative art of TV. Uh, I'm not as interested in that as I am in um, the physical, visceral, emotional experience of watching television and movies. And, like, my favorite movie that I've seen this year so far, and it may be, it'll probably be displaced by the end of the year, but is Apollo 13. 11. I'm uh, sorry, yeah. Apollo 13. I can't believe you. I, I haven't gotten I don't that. know if you can cut that out or not, it. but I feel like an idiot. Um, We're not cutting that out. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's been a long week, By the way, man. that doesn't make you an idiot. It, uh, you're, you're, you're two numbers away. Apollo yeah. 13 is a really good movie, too. It is, it is. But anyway, Apollo 11. Apollo 11. Uh, the documentary where they took this previously uh, unseen footage and they edited it together. And the thing that I loved about it was... They didn't try to do a straightforward documentary. They did this thing that was like a musical symphonic 
appreciation of the idea of the space program and of space travel. And each section of that thing is like a song on an album. It's like an album. It's like a visual album about about the trip to the moon. And they have this incredible uh, moment early on. I realized that I was going to love this movie when you see each of the three astronauts being suited up to get into the space capsule. And you see people helping them on with their suit. And then there's a, a cut, like, you know, as someone is looking in kind of the middle distance, like not in any person, they insert a series of images, some still frame images and some documentary images that basically shows you their birth, their childhood, their marriage, all uh, previous important missions that they were on leading up to the present. So it's like they give you like almost like a 20, 30 second like biography of each of the three astronauts in the space of that cut. I love and it. And then they return you to their to, to their face. The Right Stuff is one of my favorite movies of all time. I've watched yeah. The Right Stuff. It's definitely one of the movies I've watched the most yeah. in my yeah. life. I've certainly watched it more than 12 times. So yeah. like, I'm, I can't wait to see this. But you just give a very Zollerish answer, the jazzy answer to my question, which is you just demonstrated the critical faculty. But I am actually interested. I, one of my oldest friend's sons want, it really wants to be a film and TV critic. That's mm. actually like his goal. He's in college. Can't you tell him to be stuff. a blacksmith instead? Dude. Basically, more and, of a future there. And um, yes, well, it could come back. I, honestly, the way things are going, we could need Smiths, Smithies. They could, we could need them again really quickly. <laughs> I mean, think about it, man. People yeah. to make about, yeah. to, to make halberds yeah. and pole axes. Every, every time I read or watch post-apocalyptic <laughs> fiction, I think, what use would and such a society have for a man or like mi- myself? Or me. I mean, maybe I could make up stories. Story, storytellers, I think, would still. You know, the best I could do is I could sit around the campfire and remind people of old episodes of television. Yes, well, I might be able. To to make up a story to tell them. But, but talk about um, consciously developing taste, if you, uh, if, if you did. Because, you know, certain, like if I talk to my old friend, the, the person who tells what you guys do, I've been friends with the longest, and is really a dear friend, is Glenn Kenny. And, you know, Glenn set out in a very clear way to know everything and to watch everything. And yeah. it's one of the things, like, I was homesick two days ago and I w- was like, Glenn, I need a Western to watch, a, a great, an undeniably great one that I haven't seen. And he was like, oh, Gunfighter. Uh, this is, you know, you got to, and he just like gave me Which exactly one, the Henry King one? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. Oh, my God. Great. It's unbelievable. I can't believe I missed it. And that's like, that's my favorite, probably my favorite Gregory Peck performance. You really? Know? Yeah, Atticus Finch can kiss my ass. That's this, this, oh, this guy with right. the handlebar mustache who gets gunned down by some kid. That's my jam. I love I this guy. I love, I think he's so underrated for one of those guys. I love Gregory Peck. Yeah. yeah. Um, always. And I, man, that movie's perfect. And it also, is. so many movies come from it. Have you seen it? It does. Uh, yes, it does. So many movies come from that movie. Silverado basically is a take on The Gunfighter. The Shootist is the same movie, well, course, but, but yes. not as good. Yep. Of, of course. The Shootist, uh, the, the, the difference with The Shootist is he knows he's dying in a different way. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, and we referenced The Shootist in this season of the show. Hmm, In a very, very subtle way, uh, which I'll tell you guys after. Um because I don't want to spoil it. And it's wait, wait, wait. So you're four. saying that there's a pop cultural reference on Billions? Yes. The one that nobody would know. Shocking. It's literally just two words that come from the shootest that Dave and I put in. Most of the time, they're only for us, and nobody knows. They're literally like two words that he and I have repeated to each other for 30 years <laughs> that only we know are from a movie. Um, but, but talk about consciously. I, I want to understand it. Did you, Matt, set out, when you decided I want to write about this stuff, how did you decide what was going to be the prism through which you looked at this stuff? I don't know if I really dis- consciously decided anything, but it was definitely a logical outgrowth. First of all, growing up in a family of performers and 
artists, you know, and, and particularly the performance part was really important because, you know, when you go to see live music, you're not just appreciating the, the construction of the music, like the way it's written, you're, you're appreciating the way the music is performed, each of the individual instrumentalists, how they interact together, and also you're feeling, literally feeling the music in your body as you're watching it, and, you know, the bass and the drums and the horns and everything else, and you're experiencing them differently. And to me, that's my go-to metaphor for um, a movie or a television show, which is, you know, you've got... You've got the actors and you've got the story, but you've also got the music and the cutting and like the whole vibe of it is really important. And, and you know, I want to communicate that in my writing to the extent that that's possible. The other thing, though, is that I went to high school at Arts Magnet High School in Dallas uh, to be to be a visual artist. You know, I was a pretty good visual artist. Like I used to have serious chops and I studied painting and printmaking and metal sculpture and all kinds of stuff. And. When the time came to go to college, I applied to visual arts programs and writing programs, and I was either going to go to the Philadelphia Art Institute or to SMU, Philadelphia Art Institute for painting and SMU for writing, and I went with SMU because I lived in Dallas and I didn't have to pay for a dorm. So there's another universe in which I'm, you know, probably a struggling painter or something like that. And when I, and Alan will- Or Jeffrey Coons. Yeah, well, and Alan will testify to this because he's gone to so many screenings with me, but like, I don't just write down dialogue and notes to myself. I draw storyboards in the dark when I'm at the movies. Right. So, you know, and so, so I can you, remember the you, shot, so you, I can describe the shots, like frame left, such and such, background, this is happening, you know? Yeah, it's sort of- So what, you commented it from, as an artist, basically. Yeah. And you yeah, commented and, as like a, uh, uh, an enthusiast. Yes, and I and when I'm wa- and when I'm watching something, and it's a good thing that I'm not a movie critic because my system would not work in a theater. But I will literally, I will have my laptop out. I'm a very fast typist. I basically do like a court tra- courtroom transcript of the episode I'm watching. So it's you know, Axe walks into the room, Wags follows him, Wags twirls his mustache, makes a reference to the professionals, Axe corrects his reference to the professionals. Right, you know. move on. Yes, you know, and and along the way, and anything that like anything that's a feeling of mine or anything that I want to emphasize, I put in all. Caps, but it's it's so detailed that like when I did my Breaking Bad book a few years ago, I didn't have to go back and rewatch every episode because my like I had these transcripts of my real time feelings of what I what I had gone through when it happened. I fill up every square inch of a page. I, I write in these little um, moleskin notebooks, and they're they're not lined because I want to be able to draw and not have those lines there. And and I fill up every inch of the page, and I start by writing horizontally left to right, but then I fill up ver- vertically the margins and the corners, and I have rectangles and squares, like depending on the aspect ratio. And like when you look at, when you look at an entire thing that's filled up, it looks like the diary of a psychotic killer from like, you know, Manhunter or something right. like that. And do you do that, sorry, do you do that, um, or Graysmith's notebooks from yes, Zodiac? Yes, totally, totally, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you, uh, do you, and you do that the first time that you watch something. So do you never experience it at, just as the filmmaker intended? I don't know what they intended, you know? Like, All I, right, do you never, yeah, sure. But do you, and it doesn't matter, I guess, from the Derrida sort of standpoint. In the sense, well, it's not like, but you I know, mean, I'm trying ever, to watch it, you, you know? Because you, you're like, talking about having an emotional reaction. Yeah, yeah. Does that help you have an emotional reaction? I am having reaction? an emotional reaction, but it's the same way that, like, you know, my 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 sketchbooks that I keep, you know, I guess is a more accurate way than to say that my notebooks when I'm watching a movie or a television show, it's basically like an EKG readout of my gut, my my response, my physical yeah. response to something, and you can actually see me like getting when I get really excited, 
you see like the the writing gets larger and there's exclamation points and I'm underlining yep. things and like sometimes I tear through the page I get through excited and if I get really into a movie I stop taking notes that's and right. Alan's seen that happen a yes. couple of times. Yeah, I remember we were watching Fellowship of the Ring together, and you know he's scribbling furiously. And then there's a certain point I think where the Balrog shows up. It was the up. scene with the Balrog. Yes. And that was and that put, was he, my last. He note. puts the notepad down and he just leans over to me and says, "Alan, I am so fucking happy right now." <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. I actually say I actually said later on we were having coffee and I said like it's like the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where it's like the castle of Og it's like maybe yeah. he died while writing it right <laughs> no <laughs> I remember that movie I mean uh, that movie made me just so happy too yeah and it I'm never lets a, up it's a it's an it's an it's a freight train that seems like it's out of control but they're totally in uh, control that's of one that of those train. things that's really sad about the movies now and the sort of way that the you know next generations won't even really probably have them hardly they'll go four times a year three yeah. times yeah like the but so my son was too young when the first one came out and then so when the second one came like we we watched the first one on DVD and then went to the second one and then when the third one came out which for me it was one of the great cinema going experiences of my life yeah, yeah, taking my yeah. son to see that the third movie mm-hmm. yes I mean that's the uh, almost an irreplaceable moment I mean <laughs> and each ending. Each ending made me happier and happier. <laughs> I know. Time when something has multiple endings like yeah. that. I know. I love that. You're annoyed, but but I was, was happy ramping and happier down. The ramping with, down with is each fun. one. And by that point, you've had like twelve to thirteen hours of narrative. So what's wrong with fifteen minutes of you know jumping on the bed? Yeah, exactly. Do, Alan, do you watch? So you'll watch just once? No, it depends. Like Mad Men in the early days, for instance, I would the first. Before they got rid of the screeners, my system was I would watch the episode with no computer, no notepad. Not taking your notes. Nothing. Just I'm going to watch the episode by myself. Then when my wife would put the kids to bed, I would watch it a second time with her doing my usual insane OCD, you know, transcript thing. And then when that would be done, we would talk about it for a while and, you know, sort of form the ideas together. She was always sort of my secret weapon in writing those recaps. And then I think when they went screenerless, I tried that once, and I realized after watching it the first time, I knew exactly what I wanted to say, but hadn't taken any notes. Mm-hmm. So I had to do it all over again. So everything I condensed. Sometimes I watch things twice. It it just really varies on time, and especially with all the TV now, it becomes very difficult to justify doing it twice. But then if you don't watch it twice, can you really do the thing that you... Do you feel you, there's no sort of diminution in the quality of what you do yourself not that anyone else would know no no i think no there there definitely is like watching the sopranos the second time for doing this book and knowing everything that was going to happen before it happened like it was a much richer experience than it was when we were covering it for the newspaper back in the day yeah Uh, certainly like in an ideal world i would write about like three shows at a time at most and watch each episode multiple times but you know at rolling stone i have to be covering a million different things at once so it's just not practical unfortunately and what about you do you not watch things a second time well it depends on the show and and in a sense I kind of am doing two drafts of everything because I take such detailed notes when I when I watch something yes. the first time and I'm watching you know and I'm looking at the screen I'm not like usually stopping to write something I'm like writing like I'm looking at the screen and I'm writing and I've trained myself to do that so that I'm not like it's not an incomprehensible mess uh, and I can draw like a super basic it's not like detailed like you can print it and sell it it's just like a really basic storyboard like a circle is somebody's head that kind of thing um, and, and so then when I sit down to write, I already have basically the first draft of my review, handwritten and hand-drawn. 
Right. And then when I'm writing it, that's the second draft. Yeah. And I do this thing at RogerEbert.com where my film reviews appear. I have a, a, a somewhat regular feature called 30 Minutes On. And people say, how is it possible that you can write that in 30 minutes? Because like, I'm kind of cheating because when I'm watching that movie for two hours, I'm taking notes continuously. So when I sit down to do 30 minutes, that's really just rearranging stuff on the page. But sometimes, don't you find, like with a David Fincher piece, let's say. Yeah. So I, one of the great wild experiences that Levine and I ever had was we were um, in L.A. with Steven Soderbergh and he said we can go watch um, Zodiac it's almost done Fincher's going to show it to us so we went and watched <laughs> Zodiac with just that's quite a sentence the two of yeah. us yeah it was it was the two of us Stephen Fincher and uh, Edward Norton and Danny DeVito for some reason Fincher had invited <laughs> them they you know obviously we were friends with Edward from our movies together but we all watched that movie then and then I watched it and I had this, obviously that movie, you have this incredible visceral reaction yeah. to it. Yeah. But I watched it last night again, maybe mm -hmm. for only the second time. And man, so as a filmmaker, the second time I watch something, it's entirely different. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really begin to understand what's going on. And that's when I start to have a ton of questions. Like last night, I wrote down a bunch of mm -hmm, notes, mm -hmm. things I wanted to talk to Stephen. I wrote Stephen like a long email this morning. Actually, yeah, I wrote him a long email text. And he was like, did you, do you know Fincher did like 20 extras on that thing and there's a commentary? And I said, no. He goes, watch that, then come back with more questions. But I, I do, so do you think you missed something by not having that second chance to uh, evaluate? Sure. Yeah, but, yeah, but there's, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, you know, you got to, you can miss a masterpiece. I find you can miss a masterpiece. Yeah, but you know what? I feel like if I, if there's something that's truly, truly a work of depth and originality that I'm going to have to grapple with, even if I'm having an allergic reaction to it at the time, that's when the little alarm bell goes off and I go, I should probably watch this a second time. And there have been instances where, and in fact, it just happened, um, not too long ago with a movie uh, called, called uh, I'm trying to think, it was an Australian film, but I saw it in a theater and I said, you know what, I think I need to see this a second time before I write the review. Like, I know Something's that I, nagging at you. I know yeah. that I like it. I was like, I know that I like it, but the intricacies of the way they explained a certain aspect of this mythology... I don't think I fully grasped it. And I asked them, can I get a link and watch this Because what I'm trying time? to get to is so, con... Is the con what I'm trying to get to is the where you find the confidence in the opinions that you have. But what's interesting, because because I'm only a TV critic, and TV critic is one of the six jobs that Matt has, yes. TV shows, you get second chances. So you and I have dealt with this. I was not a an enormous fan of Billions in the first season, and it really took until the second year for me to come around on it. And I don't know that you and Dave were doing anything significantly different the second time, I just sort of, I think I had to sit with the show a little more and my feelings for it evolved and I wrote about that. And I wrote about it again, you know, last yes. year and I'll write about it again at some point this season. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, BoJack Horseman is one of my favorite shows of the last decade. I stopped watching it after the fourth episode. I thought, all right, this is like an adult swim, you know, Seth MacFarlane type thing. It's kind of cute, but I'm moving on. And then enough people yelled at me that I went back to it. And so part of the job is you have to sometimes say, I was wrong. Although, to be fair to yourself, I don't think BoJack really became BoJack until the back half of season one. That's true. Which is a danger, uh, another danger when you're writing about television, because, you know, a movie is a, a discrete, you know, with one E, uh, one, two E's, uh, not three. 
uh, entity. It's a self-contained thing. It's like it's you know it's ninety minutes to three and a half hours in length, whatever whatever length it happens to be. And unless you're Michael Mann, who endlessly recuts his movies, it, it doesn't change substantially from one version to the next. Like 2001 A Space Odyssey is 2001 A Space Odyssey, has been for 50 years. And when I describe it, you know, you and I may have a different emotional or intellectual reaction to it, but it's not like we're describing a different object. But if I describe The Sopranos season one, and to someone who, I don't know why, but they've only seen season six, they may not recognize what I'm talking about because that you know this. You make television. I mean, it, it organically there's a shift, there's a change. You try th new things. You go. You th say maybe this isn't working. We won't do that anymore. Here's a thing that seems promising. Let's explore that. It's just different. It's, it's well, a I, different. That, that makes complete logic sense. Uh, although I look at a movie like Fight Club, and I think that movie is the same movie. Just to stay with Fincher for a second, yeah. but it completely changes. That movie's changed like three different times based on where you were in the world when you watched it. Oh, see, it. that's a different thing. But though. but in a way, it's in a way, though. it's as you unpack as one unpacks that movie. Yes, there's so much you, one might have missed in the time actually about mm. what he, they were saying. I guess to clarify, what I mean is, it's like I know it, you mean it, the shots are the it, same, but also I mean like in terms of like the acreage that the story covers yes. narratively. It's like the difference between yes. my describing this table versus New York City. You know, like we all stare at this table and we can describe it and talk about what it is. But if I tell you what New York is like, it depends on what neighborhood you visited. You know what I mean? Yes. Like it's just there's just so much more to take. Yes, in. for sure. I think, by the way, TV show, it seems to me that often, I mean, some people nail the tone of their show right away. Some people have the idea, like, I don't think David and I figured out the show till the fourth episode of the first season where we understood tonally what it was, right? Yeah. Where we found the Andrew Bird songs that began and that song that began and end that episode about sociopaths, and the way that that played against the thing was like, oh, that's the show. Now, how do we get there? <laughs> and then you spend time trying to figure out, yeah, how do we? Okay, now we understand what we're trying to do. How do we actually do it, right? Mm. It's it, and so I do think TV actually does yeah. evolve at times and change. No, and, and even even shows that know themselves almost immediately, like The Sopranos, they change. You know, the first season was like you know the first album or the first novel where he built it up in his head for years and years, and then the second season is oh I have to make this a TV show now. And then Nancy died, Nancy Marchand died, and then it becomes something else, and then other things I happen. I loved when you guys asked him about that in the book. Yeah. I mean, the book has these conversations with Chase, and everybody focuses on the, the one where you talk about the end. But I found I could have I could have read 200 more pages of that those conversations. He's really interesting. And the conversations between the two of you guys arguing, uh, those or debating, yeah. I thought were fascinating. He he. Uh... He was a, a really interesting, in some ways difficult, but ultimately extremely rewarding interview. And one of the things I appreciated the most about him was how how open he was to the idea that he may have done things on purpose without meaning to. Yes. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, it's the subconscious, which is running so much of what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and one All example the time of he that, goes, I don't know why we did that. And the yeah. ending, you know, they're talking about the ending, like, you know, he ultimately said, uh, essentially, I'm summarizing here, but he had an original idea for the ending uh, where Tony would have been driving through the Lincoln Tunnel and there would have been, like, the white light. Yeah, I remember that. And he said, like, it was kind of a subtle way of saying whatever happened to Tony at that meeting with Johnny Sack, it wasn't good. And most people would probably draw the conclusion that he got killed. And he thought, like, well, that's kind of a subtle way to do the usual gangster ending. And then he thought, I don't want to do the usual gangster ending. And he moved away from it. However, a lot of people still came away from that thing going, oh, he must have gotten shot. 
And for me, one of the most rewarding parts of the whole experience was talking to him about that and saying, is it possible, David, that even though you very consciously tried to move away from this ending that would send the message that he got clipped, a lifetime of consuming gangster films where the guy gets killed at the end might have somehow contaminated your mind anyway, and, you, and, you get, and that's why people think this. And he said, that's possible. That's quite possible, you know. And there's a lot of other things that are, you know, probably accidentally on purpose as well in that in that show. I mean, but it's a show about so much about psychology and why do we do the things we do? And sometimes we can explain it. Sometimes we can't. So it makes perfect sense. I mean, the cut in the second to last episode to Bobby restating, you probably just go. You probably. Well, yeah, you don't. I, even, yeah. You don't even hear it happen. You don't even hear it happen. Right. I answers the question for me um, in a pretty definitive way. And I think the last episode is one of the best episodes of television of all time. It's great. Yeah. As I yeah, think. It's great. Um, even, even not just the final four minutes, but the whole thing is kind of incredible. Hey, let's talk about Zip Recruiter. Here's the thing. Hiring is challenging. There's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place? ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. Look, ZipRecruiter sends your jobs over 100 of the world's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. One of my favorite writers about Mad Men hated the last episode, and it made me decide I was never going to care about what he wrote ever again. <laughs> and do you ever think about that, who you're writing for? Because I read this person religiously about the show, and then he hated the last episode. I thought the last episode fulfilled every promise that Matt made about the show. Yeah. Um, do you guys worry about the way your stuff is going to land? Like, who are you writing for? I'm, I mean, I'm writing for the audience. I know that guys like you, you know, actors on shows, others read me, but that's not who I'm writing for. Right. Well, I'm the uh, audience, too. Yes. Uh, but I'm saying when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm writing about your show, I'm No, but I'm saying about Mad... Like, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I'm just... I'm writing for mm -hmm. the people who are watching this show. And my opinion has to be my opinion. I can't couch it. I can't alter it. I can't, you know... I mean, I've learned as I've gotten older to be less of an asshole in my writing, to take less pleasure from just being gratuitously mean. But that's just, I think that's more about maturity than anything else. But still, like, my feeling has to be my feeling because if it's not, there's no point to me. It, it goes back to what you were saying originally, like, what the fuck does this guy know? I know what I know and I can express it, but ultimately you have to trust my opinion. You have to trust my feelings. And if that means sometimes that I wind up running counter to the audience... So be it. Like, Breaking Bad, a show I loved, I have very mixed feelings about that finale. I expressed it that night, have done it in the year since, including in a book. And some people still get very upset about that because they love the way the show ended. You know, I can't, I'm not going to change it because that's how I came out of it. Yeah, to me, if someone, if you didn't, if you really didn't like that end of Mad Men, you didn't understand, you didn't like the show. 
Yeah. And and so it made me go like, well, I don't. We were watching something entirely different. Did you yeah. like it or not like the end of it? I liked it. I liked it. And in fact, Alan, and, Alan and I argued about it. Uh, because... We we disagree about the meaning of the final yeah. scene. You do? Yeah. Yes. I I mean, and it's been a while, so I might have to watch it again, and it, it might change. I found it kind of a cynical ending, like Don Draper goes through this whole voyage of self-discovery, discards everything he has, travels the country, you know, has this epiphany, and what does he get out of the epiphany? A better ad. And what did you think? I think that that ending, uh, that last episode indicates real growth, mainly for the scene in group therapy where he goes up and expresses compassion for somebody he's never met. Unless he's a sociopath. I don't know. I mean, I think I, I, I don't think he is. I think he's a person who has sustained unbelievable psychic damage yes. in his life and all this. I mean, I don't want to relitigate the the, the the symbolism of Mad Men at this juncture, but we've got time. You know, suffice yeah, to say free. that uh, I, I don't think you know. I think one of the one of the takeaways of that show is that almost nobody is entirely good or entirely bad or entirely cynical or entirely idealistic. Would and, you argue that Pete is not entirely bad? No, I, I would argue that he's not entirely bad. In fact, one of the one of the ironies. How, how would of, one make that argument? One of the one of the ironies of that show is that Pete is one of the few people who is consistently on what we now know to be the correct side of history, time and time again. He has the right moral and emotional response yes. to these big cataclysmic events in American history. When other people, but he doesn't are, act on them. No, well, no, uh, no, he doesn't. But but I'm saying, like, out of the mouths of this uh, petulant, manipulative, abusive, just really crappy person. Uh, comes comes the right response, what we now know to be the right response, like particularly in like the Martin Luther King Day episode uh, and uh, the assassination episode. Um, this is a shameful, shameful day. That's Pete's line. Um, and these things happen. Sometimes a complete like raging idiot says says the right thing, you know, sometimes. And and it's a reaction against his upbringing, like his pampered upbringing. You know, like that's another form of rebellion for him. And then you get into the question of, well, if he's mainly expressing these sorts of socially correct attitudes to rebel, does that completely invalidate them? And it's like, I don't know, maybe you take it where you can get it. You know, but we can have this whole, we just spent two minutes, I spent two minutes talking about one line. That's Mad Men. But, you know, to get back to the ending, um, yeah, I do think it's a little cynical that Don, assuming that Don created that Coke commercial, and I've heard arguments that it's actually Peggy, um, assuming that Don created that Coke commercial from his experience in this kind of n- proto-New Age commune, uh, well, he's Don Draper. That's what he does. He's an ad man. He's and the it does, best and, in the world at and, it. And, and he, it doesn't mean it, that... It's a, it is a person refinding yeah. the thing that he's great at, whether that's a joyous thing or not, that in the end, yes. that's the thing Don Draper's great at. Right, and whether or not he uses that experience to make a Coke commercial doesn't... It, it has, in my opinion, no bearing whatsoever on whatever it was he did to repair his relationship with his you know his doomed wife his daughter all of his kids his co-workers and everyone else like he may have been actually a slightly better person as a result of that experience and a better ad man with those killer instincts right it's not inconceivable yeah i'm, I'm almost convinced all right. <laughs> that's which is great but this is the thing that people i mean this is the thing you guys do when you go back and forth yeah it's so much fun i think and that it exists in the books that you guys Right yeah. together. Yeah, we like to argue when we did TV the book, you know, we came up with this convoluted numerical rating system to figure out how we would rank the top 100 shows. <laughs> and the first time we ran it through the database, we wound up with a five-way tie for the best show of all time. Yeah. And we said, well, we could try to, you know, 
That Misog- numerical ranking system was such smoke and mirrors, too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be honest. Well, it's no, like, Alan, say like a That Metal Show level sort of it's, thing. Yeah. It's kind of They it would is, make the it, list it, of it was the just, best it was, We knew what the songs. shows were going to be. This was just a way that we could sort them out. Well, and, but my favorite thing was like, Alan, the number 100 show in the top 100 show is Terriers. And that was Alan saying, the number 100 show will be Terriers. Yeah, Terriers was actually like the 83rd show when, when we ran the numbers. It, yes. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to massage the numbers down because Terriers should only just well, barely well, get it. Well, you know this is going to get you to the end of the season of Billions. Is there? <laughs> no, you know that Michael Raymond James is on the show this year. Oh, Brett. Lovely. Yeah, but the best thing was he uh, he went further. He actually said uh, if there are future editions of this book, Terriers will always be the number, number one 100, 100 yes, show. Exactly. Like, there's going to be shows if we do a future edition that will fall out of the top 100 that ranked higher. Terriers will still we'll be We'll always be 100. Well, if, we're, a, if we're each of us are in our 90s and we're doing the edition number such six. Such a fun show. And Terriers how good is Donald Logue in, uh, in Zodiac, by the way? Yeah. Oh, he's great. He's great in Zodiac. Great. But but so we, we come up with this five-way tie and we figure out, well, we can, again, massage the numbers or we can just argue about it. And we did that and people really, you know, back when we were at the Star Ledger, people hated when we argued because they were trying to get work done. But now they Gentlemen, like will it. you please, 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 please stop talking about Deadwood? Right. Yes. Yeah. I had a, an early boss uh, in the record business who, yeah, I would... He was this British guy named Howard Thompson, one of the greatest A&R men who ever lived. I mean, just the guy signed more of the greatest bands of all time that have lasted forever. But he would come in once in a while, and I was a young kid, and, would, and he would just go, Brian, clean your fucking desk off. But now, <laughs> now, he, I will sometimes, like, he signed Motorhead. And so Motorhead opened the season, and I got a nice little note from him. And I was like, yeah, well, the desk is a little cleaner now. And, <laughs> you know, somehow. I'll put in this, but, uh, yeah, it was so satisfying. Um, so... Hearing the two of you guys argue and what you said about Ebert and Siskel, that makes a lot of sense. But one thing that I will say has caused me some sort of like anxiety about the the critical consensus. Um, and listen, it's it's paid huge dividends for, for Dave and me of late. You know, Emily Nussbaum wrote, should I watch? Should I catch up on Billions? I haven't watched. And then all these TV critics and film critics wrote her and said, yes, you have to watch. The show's really good. And then she writes this wonderful thing, right? So that pays off wonderfully, and it was really great. On the other hand, it didn't used to be a conversation. When Pauline and Truffaut, who you really should read, by the way. Sure. guy was really good at this. I, I know. I mean, you, Matt, don't you think yes. he was good at this? Yes, I mean, he was, he was good he was. at this. He was one of the, in my opinion, the best of the critics that came out and became filmmakers. I've also, yeah. by the way, still never seen My Dinner with Andre, even though we are the well, subject that... of a documentary called My Dinner with Alan. So wait, wait, wait that's different because now you're you're really depriving yourself of something. No, I know, I know. Even if I you know. think it's gonna suck, it's unbelievable. No, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it is. It just it sort of never happened. Those for two me. guys are so good. Yes, I mean, all three of the people who made that movie are so. I mean, that movie's. Yeah. I mean, do you yeah, love yeah, it too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I it's love no. it. I'm. And I would make this kind of movie I made fun of. You know, I only watched, I, I mean, I didn't watch a good movie till I was in college, really. Yeah. And I definitely would have laughed at the idea of my dinner with Andre. Now I love is, it. I love it. I and and love I love his more. other his other movie in that mode is Vanya. Vanya's, 40, Vanya's oh, oh, Vanya on 42nd Street. Vanya on 42nd Street is a perfect thing. <laughs> yeah. When you just don't realize and he's just lying there on that bat. Yeah. That's an amazing mm-hmm. thing. Mamet, got to give Mamet a little credit on that he one. He does, yeah. Because Mamet wrote, I mean, Mamet wrote the yes. version of Vanya that they're doing. Right. They call it a translation, but it's it's basically David Mamet's Vanya. It's Mamet's Vanya. Vanya yeah, really. it is. Yes, because he didn't translate the... 
No. Damn, it's working from a translation. <laughs> yeah, Let's be yeah, honest right, here. Exactly. We didn't yeah. go learn the Russian. Yeah. It's but another it Mamedian Khan. <laughs> but it's just his way of... I was a little surprised by the scene where, it's, you know, people are yelling, will you yeah, go to lunch? Yeah. You know, but... <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, That's my name. Fuck you, Vanya. That was the original title. Exactly right. But but, uh, that's our episode title, by the way, Bob. It's fuck you, Vanya. But um, here's the the question, though, right? It didn't used to be a conversation. And in fact, a critical reevaluation used to take a long time. And everyone wrote in their silo. They would go to a movie, maybe, but they would studiously not talk to each other at the Mm -hmm. screenings. They would go back. People would hope they were on the same side Pauline was on. If they were not on it, that was life. And it happened. I don't know if that's entirely the way I would describe it. I mean, like, Pauline Kael... I know she had the gaggle of people around She did. And, like, there were were actual conversations about, you know, what did you think of that? Well, maybe you should think this. You know, I'm not saying she, you know, ordered people to write certain things. But but that was after after she really became Pauline. Yes, that's right. That's right. But 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 there was also that feud between, you know, Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris. Yes, Saris, Where it wasn't like they were physically punching each other at screenings, but they were definitely doing it in print. You know, and there were and there were other critics like you know John Simon used to go after Paul. But and what Kale. I'm getting to though is there's this there is this sense I think on film TV critic Twitter, where a consensus, a, and I would say like uh, the, a, a snarky sort of consensus can show up, have, and sometimes even as the stuff as the materials first arrive, you can feel if you read film TV. You know, critic Twitter, if you're engaged in that, you can feel the different people starting to float little test bubbles yes. about their opinion. Yes, yeah. they want to make sure that Alan doesn't think they're an idiot <laughs> or that like they're and it. And I wonder if that has some sort of a deleterious effect. Or let me say, I, I think it probably does uh, in the short term because, and I wonder how the two of you guys see it. How do you? How do you manage that? Because it's one thing to say, and you said it before. I won't read other people's reviews, but you. Kinda, oh, I'll read them afterwards. But you kind of don't have to because yeah. they're, the, they're immediately, starting, to, sort of just seed out their little mini takes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes without stating what the thing is, and how does it stay at all pure, and how does it not just follow? But I, I think it goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of this about me reading Ebert and Kale and saying and really enjoying when we disagreed. Like a, a lot of my best stuff is done in conversation, whether I'm talking with my wife, whether I'm on Twitter or texting or in a room with Matt or whatever. Just sort of we're, we're talking about something, and it doesn't change my opinion, but it it always helps me better articulate it. Um, and I think when there definitely are these Twitter consensus. But you don't have to go along with them. Like all the cool kids, like came around on Succession last summer. I never did, and that's you know I'm glad they were enjoying it. It didn't work for me. I haven't Matt seen Succession, yeah. but I know you're a good man for that position. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. I'm sure down the road I'll love it, but for now I'll say that you're a good man. But but I, I, I right like a lot of my best writing is just. Like, I know my feeling, but in order to put it into words, I really just have to talk it out with someone. And whether that's verbally, writing, tweeting, whatever, that often helps shape exactly what I'm going to say. But it's not impacting the the core feeling of that. I have a thing that I do sometimes when I'm blocked, which is I will ask a friend of mine, hey, would you like to talk about blah, 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 you know, on Gchat? And they'll say yes, and then I will start 
writing in the little gchat window and it goes on for a thousand words and then i've got my review it's a it's weird that sometimes i need to do that but once in a yeah. while it happens so you don't think that this that, that the sort of doing this in public in real time affects the, the critical consensus well i think it's uh, okay here's my grand unifying theory of twitter criticism which is that the critical consensus is being formed by everybody like it's a wikipedia entry now and it's like in those science fiction movies where they show you nanotechnology and a bunch of little tiny insects form the shape of a giant moth, which then crushes Tokyo. That's what that is. You know, like it used to be like, you know, the, the kaiju rampaging across the landscape was John Simon or Pauline Kale. And now it's the nanobots of Twitter, you know, and of which I am one. Like there are a lot of people who... I get a little annoyed and I've had to train myself not to get annoyed because they get annoyed with you if you get annoyed with them. But there are a lot of people who follow me on Twitter who I don't think have ever read a single thing that I've actually written. Like an actual piece, you know, the piece that I sweat over that I make sure has a nice, a, an interesting structure and a beginning, middle, and an end and some good lines. They're not interested in that. They want the tweets. And I've grown to accept it, you know. But like my tweets are part of this nanotechnology that's forming the critical consensus uh, on whether or not Billions is a good show or Successions is a good show or whatever is a good show, BoJack. And uh, I think it's kind of, uh, you know, I think something has been lost in that. Uh, but maybe I only think that because I'm essentially a 20th century person. You know, I don't know. I mean, like what I miss is the uh, the permanence of um, it used to be when I was learning about criticism, I went to the Dallas Public Library and I used to read back issues of magazines. And I read Time and Newsweek and New Yorker and New York Time and the New York Magazine and uh, U.S. News and World Report, and you know, it, you know, which wasn't really a, a review outlet, but had industry coverage in it, and you know, Variety and anything I get my hands on. And I read books, and and these were uh, as long as there was a copy, a physical copy of something in a library, I could go read it. And things disappear now, and people delete tweets, and they delete their accounts, and and our entire archives. Like I've had colleagues whose entire like. I have a friend who wrote for five, six years for an independent weekly, and he wrote some really great stuff, and it's all gone. Yeah, it's all gone. That's a and like, where thing. is the where is this stuff coming to light? And like, the nanobots are not permanent, is my point. Well, there was a scare that all the Ringer stuff was gone. Yeah. a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and the well, I'm worried about my, the voice. The I'm thought that all my voice. Carmelo Anthony, I was on <laughs> record so clearly about Carmelo Anthony at Ringer. I mean, yeah. at, at not Ringer at um Grantland. Grantland. Sorry, it wasn't yeah. the Ringer. There was no ringer scare. It was a Grantland yeah. scare. And um, like the thought that everything I wrote about Mello is just gone really upset me for sure. But but what do you think about the... the? I mean, I know that nothing's permanent. Like paper paper disintegrates too. And, you know, we all fade in time. And that's the last season, season six and seven of The Sopranos, you know, is about that. Is, you know, like eventually well, everything... All will good be, art is ultimately ev about that. Yeah. Everything will er be erased like Uncle Junior's memory. Like, I get that. But when I, but it, it, it bugs me that we don't have any fixed points, really, in the way that we did, that we can all sort of scrutinize... What do you want, a boutonniere? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's... By the way, how, how have we not thrown that? That is a shame that we haven't put that in Billions. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that yes. right there... Is an absolute shame that Wags has not said that to somebody. You, you know, you might know someone who could make that happen. I'm just saying I feel embarrassed okay. that it hasn't happened. You've got, you've got time. 
One of the great, one of the one of my favorite lines. It's not a movie that I don't even particularly like that much, but I quote the line all the time: "Is Dead Poet Society when the when the teacher takes his students out into the hallway and shows them the, the wall of pictures and says, do you know what everybody in that picture? Oh, what uh, everybody behind that glass has in common, and they don't know.' And he says, they're all fertilizing daffodils. Yes, you know that's 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 ultimately what I think. I think you're right. I think I think almost every great narrative piece of art is kind. If it's not primarily about that, that's a big part of what it's about. Yeah, I mean, I don't watch Woody's movies anymore, but he is right that if you're not writing about sex and death in some way, and I would add money into it now in the way the world works, but yeah. you're kidding, you're fooling yourself. Money being the vehicle by that which people set- fool themselves into thinking that they're not going to die, right? And <laughs> get access. To, I mean, yeah. it's it's the it is the way that it's the way that it's used now to convince yourself that you're. That you're gonna, yeah, but ultimately, you know, but really, just to, to me, the 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 ultimate answer to your question, I guess, I don't know if this is really the question you're asking, but like, what does it matter what I think about anything? What does it matter what Alan thinks about anything? What any of us think about anything? Like, you know, I'm writing for, you know, I'm writing for me. I'm writing for me, and like, it's a record of what I thought and what I felt when I watched this thing. And if somebody wants to read it and have a positive or negative reaction to what I wrote, that's fine. But like, you know, uh, if I were a musician, to go back to the jazz analogy, like I would be, I would not be one of these big band but, people. I would be one of these bebop people who played with his back to the audience. Like, I don't give a shit, really, what whether people like you what You are going to be in Duke not. Ellington's band. You are yes. going to be playing with Dexter Gordon. I don't care. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, 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 I don't want to sound like a jerk here, but I really don't care. Like, that messes up my game to where's, worry about what people are going to think. Whereas, you know? to a degree, I'm a people pleaser, which made this a very strange profession for me to go into. <laughs> you wanna, you're happy to be the second guitarist in Molly Hatchet? Yeah. <laughs> That's, Sure. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so for you, this the Twitter thing, I mean, you use it a lot. Yeah. And and for you, it's only a positive. Yeah. I mean, no, sometimes it's a negative. There's terrible people. But like I've been I've been. Pretty no, f- I love Twitter. Not terrible people. I'm talking about for, for doing what you do for a living. No, no. It, it, it really has not uh, negatively impacted things other than occasionally like a showrunner will decide that they hate me for something I've written about the show and then sort of organize their minions to go after me. But that... I was just sad that you didn't like it at first because I liked you. <laughs> it was totally different. Uh, There's a showrunner who shall remain nameless who has refused every request for any kind of thing, including fact-checking for me, because I did not put their show on my top ten list after putting Listen, it on as a showrunner, I'll say there are times yeah. you can hold a grudge if you feel somebody... If you feel something's unfair or there's a fundamental misunderstanding, yeah, I think you have, I mean, as a showrunner, I think you have the right to be. And I will say the one thing that bothers me about critics on Twitter is I feel like there is no one as thin-skinned as the group of as critics on Twitter. I feel that if somebody goes after a critic, a showrunner, or a, a filmmaker, all of critical Twitter goes after them. And I think mm-hmm. it's not fair. I feel like the 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 aggrieved party has every right to say what they want to say. I suppose, but I always counterbalance that by reminding people that the vast majority of people who call themselves critics are barely surviving. You know, where they have a day job or something. So to me, it's like a fight. There's a financial imbalance. You know, no it's like it's like it, a fight. Not... You know, but a fight between like Ryan Murphy and some guy on Twitter is the fight between you know me and the and the guy who's stocking groceries. Like it's there's an imbalance there. You know. Sure, in in that particular example where you're drawing it that way, yeah. yes. But often the small critic like that, I can't imagine Ryan Murphy going after somebody who's oh. got no. <laughs> I don't know Ryan. I've never met him. Yeah. You're both nodding though. Yeah, it's happened. Oh, going after someone who has no real readership. Uh, yeah. 
I would say I would say that not Ryan particularly. I, I you know I like him. I've had mostly good interactions with him. But but I will say that there is a failure <clears throat> on the part of not just showrunners but directors, producers, and everybody to understand that the economy that we live in now makes it almost impossible for most people, even more impossible than it used to be to make a living as a writer. So a lot of these people like they're tweeting this stuff. From their day, from their day job, like Alan and I, like I've got basically five jobs, and and uh, uh, you know, but I'm living more comfortably than than most of the people who are practicing criticism, and I'm keenly aware of that, and I'm trying, and I and I try to uh, bear that in mind, and that's why I don't get into too many fights with other critics because you know, like I'm I'm there, but for the grace of God, go I. Like I keep, you know, we said at the top of this podcast, the ice flow is shrinking, and like you know. Well, no, I'm keenly aware, but I yeah. oh God, you seem like no, you no, want to no, say no, something. No, 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 say what you want to say. No, no, I can tell you were ready to tee up a question. Go for it. Well, no, it's that that I mean, I had written this down, which is that the uh, the idea of survival in this field that's reinvented itself, and the way journalism is under fire as a profession. Every day, friends of all of ours are getting laid off. Yes, right. And um, you know, I and obviously, I think you guys both know I have such great regard for journalism. Like I've never had to be, I've never had to survive as a journalist, but I've yeah. done a lot of journalism over my life. So I've in, mixed in with a lot of journalists because yeah. I've just been, you know, I've, I've been able to dip in, you know, I covered the masters last year. I was able to go do that, write about it for SI, but I don't, yeah. and, and what I saw was this sense of incredible fear yeah. where it's all, you can feel it. And yes. what I'm, I'm wondering about though, is how you've survived. Because you two are at the top of the food chain in this. Yeah. You've done it by being really good at your jobs. But, but separate from that, um, how much conscious thought do you put in the career building, keeping part? How do you manage what you can't control? Just mentally and practically. Alan, you first. How do you think right. Well, it? part of it is we've just been fortunate by good timing. Like we were in the right place at the right time in several instances. One we were hired by a newspaper, the Star-Ledger in New Jersey, in the 90s at a time when newspapers in general were flush and the Star-Ledger was really flush. They were spending money hand over fist. There was a time when we were both on the TV beat when between writers and editors there were maybe nine different people on staff right. That's like just handling our TV now. coverage in some way or form. Uh, you know, Now you're lucky to get a part-timer doing it. Um, so there's that. So we were able to establish our credentials at a time when the media ecosystem existed. Number two, we were the TV critics at Tony Soprano's hometown paper. So, like, we were there. We had access to Chase. Matt was one of the few people who ever got to interview Jim Gandolfini. So we were able to cover, like, this seismic event in the history of television. Right, and you had David Chase. Yeah, and Chase, I was the only interview Chase did after the show ended. So, like, that put me on the map. And, you know, because of these things, like, we were able to make names for ourselves before that, um, you know, when I started doing recapping again in 2005, it was still a relative novelty. Television Without Pity had been out there, a few others, but it was still a relatively new thing, and I started doing it a lot. And that's sort of the way that the media, you know, covering television then pivoted. And be because I had got, you know, I'd gotten in early on the land rush, I was able to establish myself there. So I'm now, I I'm never safe because nobody is safe in the media industry at this point. But I'm relatively secure because of a lot. Uh, there's a lot of history, and my name carries enough weight that. Do you worry about it? Of course I do. Of course I do. All the time, I think to myself. Because you like, have kids, and yes, I have kids. One of them is going to be going to college in a few years. One is about ten years away from doing that. I, I don't know how I'm going to pay for him to go when it's his turn because I don't know if I'm going to be employed at that time because the media. 
you know, it's there are fewer seats in the game of musical chairs every time, every time I look up. And I've been lucky to this point, but at a certain point, I'm going to have to figure out what a useful skill I have to Do you mean society. that? Or are you saying it sort of glib? Like, you mean no, you're going to... I mean it. Do I, you think about it? Like, I do. Yeah. Do you plan for Do you plan for it? I, I mean, one of the reasons I think I've written as many books as Matt and I have written together yes. separately is, A, to you know make more income, but B, to sort of have another thing. I could, Like, if I lose a full-time job... You can I go could, get a book deal. Quickly. Yes, I could. I could probably get a book deal, and all these books have been written as a part-time things while I'm working for another outlet. So if I'm just writing books, I don't. You know, maybe I could survive that way. Uh, Matt has like seven different jobs that he does. Yeah. So if one of them falls through, he's got a lot of others. Yeah. What are the seven jobs? Well, I, I'm the or TV. Five jobs. Well, I'm the TV critic for, for New York, New York magazine. magazine and Vulture. I'm a film, uh, the editor at large, and and film critic for RogerEbert.com. I teach a class for Syracuse University. I'm the artistic director of Split Screens Television Festival, which happens in New York every June, and I write books. I write one to two books a year, and then the, there's occasional freelance things that I do here and there, and you know. Um, but yeah, so but, I, but I tell my think, students. You, you consciously know, think about it too. Oh sure, and I tell my students. You know, the not too many of my students who are taking my my arts criticism class want to be critics, and bravo for them because. It's ridiculous. It was never easy, and it's harder than it's ever been. But I tell them, like, look, if you if you want to know about the reality of this, in 1995, when I moved to New York from Dallas, I had one job, and I was making adjusted for inflation the same amount of money I'm making now with five-plus jobs. And I'm 50 now, and, <clears throat> you know, I'm told that I'm fairly well-liked. I have no idea if that's true. <clears throat> that, may be, that may be true, or it may be what people tell me because I'm perceived as having influence. Uh, but I'm 50, and according to the actuarial tables, I've got 20 to 30 years left in me, probably. And when you turn 50, even if people like you, they start to look at you, and if they're younger, and go, why is that guy sitting in that seat? That should be my seat. That's just a reality. Well, I mean, as a like, 52, almost 53-year-old, I, I... So I'm thinking, like, I what's know. the next move? You know? I don't know. But you think about it. Oh, sure. It. No, yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. important to you. I mean, That's I wanted to bring this up. About. That's what the I think the it's really important about. to humanize yeah. the position yeah. that... You're, because I'll say one thing that um, this media Twitter understands this, but I don't think most people understand that people who have their names in like you know you guys are very influential. Every you're well well read. I, you um, you're not as well read as you should be, Alan, because you haven't read the Truffaut and Andrew Saris. <laughs> but uh, I read but I mean, Saris. All right, okay, good. But I mean, you guys are um, read very well by people. Yeah, and yet. You're in a you're you're in a perilous position. You find sure. yourselves because that is also the thing that I think showrunners and movie makers feel all the time, which is why we take reviews at times so personally, is because it really affects our life. The thought is it could affect our yeah our livelihoods and our legacies. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I don't know. I don't know. People what to people, say. people come to me all the time asking me for advice on how to get into the business. And one, I never have good advice because my specific path to doing this is unique and non-replicable. But yeah, be become famous in your industry in college is a hard yeah, thing to do. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean it's a hard yes, thing yeah, to replicate. Is, be be yeah. credited for inventing a new form of criticism, even though you didn't really invent it. Like that's I can't say that to somebody. But beyond that, like there just aren't that many jobs. So almost everyone who reaches out to me like that, I will say the, to them, you have to be prepared for this to be something you do for fun while something else is paying your bills. Do you think? Sorry, just this is a totally. I just when you reminded yeah. me of what you wrote about. In college so do you guys think that david milch gets all, all, it 
to the people under 40, do you think that he's like almost being forgotten as the level for the level of influence that had? Like, if I think about the biggest influences on David and me, yeah, it's David Mamet, David Milch, Barry Levinson, the Comb Brothers, probably. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. you can't underestimate the influence that David Milch had on a generation of people who realized that they could use language. They could, yeah, language can be used as a weapon in a certain yeah. way that he used it. Yeah. And I just wonder if people I, I understand think, how great NYPD Blue was. I, I think the answer to that would be unfortunately no. I mean, I think he is being forgotten to a degree. And I, the fact that this Deadwood movie is coming out in May and we were both lucky enough to be on the set of it while it was being filmed. Was he there when you were there? Yes, yes. he was there. Was he- that's great. Yeah. Was his daughter there too? Or she- yeah, yeah. His daughter, his I was there one day when his one of his grandkids was there That's as awesome. well. You know. One of the one of the daughters was like, Can you say cocksucker? You That's know? awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so um but like all right, so if you look at the things he did, um, you know, two of his masterworks are police procedurals. You know, those are not now looked on as prestige TV. You're giving him they, some Hill Street Blues yeah, credit. Yeah, because like, you know, it obviously existed before he came, but it went to another level yes. once he arrived in season three. So you look at Hill Street Blues, you look at NYPD Blue, those are two of the most important shows ever made, but they are at heart police procedurals. That is not considered fashionable prestige TV now. So even though they're on Hulu, like people are not necessarily running to watch them. Then you have Deadwood, which ran three years and is always... Not quite forgotten, but somewhat dismissed among the HBO shows of that decade because, uh, in part because it was canceled abruptly. It didn't have an ending in the way that The Wire, Six Feet Under, and obviously The Sopranos did. Yeah. And then the shows he did after that didn't really work out. Do you think he's as great as, like, I think he is? Yeah, do you think I do. Milch is in the upper upper echelon? Yeah, I do. I do. I no, I know you do. do. I do. Yeah. I, for and, me, and rewatching. Me, uh, untaught, I mean, yeah. as a dialogue writer, he's sort of. And uh, uh, someone who reveals complex character through dialogue is almost unparalleled. Well, and I also, you know, rewatched the entire, uh, the first three, the only three seasons of Deadwood. And uh, I I was struck by how cohesive it was at the level of the season, which was not something I think I necessarily perceived. I, uh, what's amazing, time, too, like, since he doesn't even think in those terms. Yeah, no, he is not in any way a long-term planner. Yeah. No, I mean, he show, I mean, I've had too many people tell me the experience of showing up and him just describing it, and then they do. Yeah, but, the, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a spine to every season, but the spine is mainly philosophical and theological. And, and so I want to just, uh, for a moment, when I read the announcement the other day on Twitter that James Walcott was out at Vanity Fair. Yeah. It felt like a little bit of a gut punch. It's the end of an era. But also he sort of invented television journalism, right? Television criticism as a serious thing. And and talk about people being forgotten. Like I really don't think anybody in the internet age understands what James Walcott did. His book, I I loved his memoir of New York, everybody should read. I forget the title of it right now, but it's, do you guys talk about what you thought of his work? I read Walcott, and in fact, uh, one of the reasons why I was promoted to uh, being a critic when I was in my 20s, uh, I was a calendar editor before, was because the editor thought that I, he, he, I reminded him of a young Walcott, because he knew him. And Walcott was young Walcott at the time, which is funny. You know, so like I don't think well, he's Walcott had full internet snark before that was fashionable. He did. He totally did. He totally uh, did. And you're nicer. I like James a lot, but you're nicer on the yeah. page than he. Yeah. And did were you? Did you read him at all? I, I came to him much later after. You went and read it when you heard afterwards yes. that he mattered. Yes, exactly. And uh, do you think he was a great critic? Um, I, I admired. I thought he he argued his opinions with conviction, which is always an important thing to do. Whether you agreed or not, yes. you thought that, and uh, and he was funny. 
Funny yeah. is important. Yes. Yeah, for me, I'm a huge fan of his work. Even when he's liked or hasn't liked stuff, he's great. He actually said I'm something. A huge fan of his he, he he did a thing in 2001 uh, where he he actually argued against The Sopranos as an important show, and uh, yeah, and and uh, and made an art a case for Law and Order instead. I have to go. Read yeah, that. I mean, there's no record of that, and I actually asked him. about What do you mean? It there's re- no record of it. I mean, I, I I talked about it recently with him at a book appearance that we did, and he and he had no memory of ever saying it, but I was there. I was there. Oh, you saw him say it. He yeah, 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 it. yeah. It was with Camille Paglia. Well, I disagree with that opinion, though. I, I don't slam. <laughs> but I will I say, like order, order, but, but yeah. it has yeah. lingered in my mind ever since, in the same way that Roger Ebert's uh, pan of blue velvet lingered in my mind. Like I don't agree with it, but but his his specific objections, uh, you know to the way that Lynch handled violence, particularly violence against women, is, like, important. You know, just because I don't like... Just because I love the movie and he didn't doesn't mean that I don't think there's some validity in what he says. Well, that's great. Thank you both. Uh, It's a good note to end on. Like, the reason I started asking that question I asked about what the the fuck do you guys know is, um, (laughs) is I'd hope that the conversation would show your catholicity of interest but also the depth to which you go and the fact that you guys take this stuff really seriously and i i think that it has i love the sopranos book and um i can't wait to see what you guys do next so where can they find you online uh, i'm at rolling stone where i'm the chief tv critic i'm on twitter at seven wall i'm at new york magazine and roger ebert.com and i'm on twitter as matt zoller sites i'm at brian koppelman we didn't get to talk about the knicks uh, Alan. Uh, we, why would we in, make Matt endure us talking about the Knicks? <laughs> I agree. And really, what is there to do except, you know, each of us stave the other's head in with a ball peen uh, hammer? Finally uh, tanked in the year when a tanking doesn't matter. Oh, yep. Exactly right. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thanks so Thank much. you.